Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I want my land. Take it in the guts, Barry. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you together? go through that doorway to the greatest little country in the world. Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Showreel, where this is 3CR's look at the Australian film industry. And uh, today we're going to return to uh, one of the uh, the, uh, events that happened at the Australian International Documentary Film uh, Conference that happened a couple of weeks ago down at ACME. Uh, It happens every year. It's actually quite an extraordinary event because it brings together a whole range of documentary filmmakers as well as those aspiring. And uh, there's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, But before we do get down to this particular episode, which is about the... the Island of Hungry Ghosts, which was shown at the festival and then we were lucky enough to hear from the uh, filmmaker Gabrielle Brady. Uh, we're going to... Uh, oh, oh, I have to tell you, if you were listening to the program before mine, that uh, the Josh Frydenberg's office is actually 695 Burke Road, Camberwell. If you were thinking of going down to the Australian Unemployed Workers uh, rally dignity not dull uh, outside they want to make a, a big noise and they want to cut a birthday cake because it's now the 25th year of the new start allowance that's how long it's been oppressing people uh, and uh, after the uh, budget uh, they thought that they might tell the treasurer that you know perhaps he should be looking for another job Anyway, we're moving on to what this program is about, which is about film and Australian, well, moving image, really. And uh, Gabrielle Brady is the filmmaker who is responsible for this film called, it's a documentary, a film called The Island of Hungry Ghosts. And it's set in Christmas Island and it's about refugees. Uh, and one of the things that's uh, most compelling about the film, besides the fact that it's a compelling film, and the subject matter, is that uh, it's a fusing of uh, um, reality, real reality, which is what documentary is generally considered to be uh, about, but it also fuses uh, sort of uh, artistic and emotive elements that uh, um, in a way that... uh, underlies the uh, messages that are in the film. And uh, so it's quite a fascinating film. Uh, And the title is so fantastic, uh, The Island of Hungry Ghosts. It tells you about a certain history in Christmas Island I had no idea about, of course, uh, which is that there used to be uh, Chinese um, uh, 
uh, people living on the island, and they still are, but their ancestors who were there to mine. They were part of a mining cohort. And uh, I think it was tin. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but it was something that they had in Christmas Island. And uh, many of... When people died there, they were often... They weren't ex- uh, their bodies weren't returned to their home country, and there is a belief that uh, their ghosts are still wandering, and that is what they're called, the Hungry Ghosts, the Island of the Hungry Ghosts. It's an incredibly uh, poignant and uh, relevant sort of uh, image, metaphor, I guess. And each year, the uh, uh, Chinese locals... Or, uh, Chinese uh, people who uh, d- people who are descendant from those original peoples have uh, a ceremony to uh, to ward off or to placate or to try and soothe the hungry ghosts. Um, the whole film is just uh, 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 an amazing. It it uh, first showed at the Tri- New York Tribeca. Uh, Documentary Film Festival and, in fact, won the best documentary feature at that particular event, I think, 2018. And uh, it w- when this particular screening was held at uh, ACME uh, in early March, it was the beginning of a Australia-wide uh, screenings of the film. So I'm not entirely sure where you can get to see it, but uh, look up. They have a website, so you can probably find out more about it there. Now, this is a, a chat that uh, Gabrielle Brady had with uh, um, the audience after the screening. So it talks a little bit about how she made the film and uh, other aspects of documentary filmmaking, which may be particularly interesting to not just uh, viewers of documentary film, but people who make documentary films. Uh, Island of the Hungry Ghosts is the first feature-length documentary, but not the first documentary film, written and directed by Gabrielle. Um, The film had its North American premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in April last year, where it received the Best Documentary Feature Prize. It uh, also won the Best International Documentary Award at the Adelaide Film Festival, among other festivals. Um, Yes, other awards. Welcome, Gabrielle. Can you just give us a little bit of background about your um, connection to your relationship with Pauline and how that is one of the catalysts for the for the film that you made? Yeah, sure. Um, so Pauline and I, before embarking on this film, <coughs> had uh, known each other for about 10 years. So we were really, really close friends. So during her time on the island working as a trauma torture counsellor, I was, you know, we were in constant conversation about what was happening for her and her work uh, as friends. And uh, it wasn't until, it would have been five years ago now, I went across to the island to visit her. I was living in Indonesia at the time. So geographically, we were a little bit closer. And uh, we went across to have a holiday. And actually in that time, Pauline had made it really clear that uh, in those three weeks, 
that we really weren't to talk about what was happening on the island, that this was a time to just enjoy, uh, to switch off, you know, that things had been getting uh, very hard for her and her work. So we spent the three weeks as a tourist <coughs> and really kind of adventuring around this, um, the idyllic side of the island. So it was a huge contrast when at the, at the end of that time, Poland had said to me, but before you go, I, I do really need to show you something. And so we went up to a lookout point, uh, you know, with machete in hand, which you need to when you're on Christmas Island, everything's completely overgrown. And we made our way through the jungle uh, to the lookout point, like we see here in the film, of the detention facility. And it was such a contrast to the three weeks of you know diving and being in these pristine waters and in a way almost forgetting uh, that this place existed. And it really struck me that this has been built to not be seen. It's been built to be hidden and to become invisible from our consciousness. And that was the process I went through, even intellectually knowing that this existed and being very close to someone that worked in the thick of it. Um, so it was a very... Um, it was a chilling moment for me, it was, and that kind of really stuck with me, and then it really came out of uh, ongoing conversations with Poland. Okay. Um, I was reading earlier today, I, you may have heard that the <coughs> federal government is going to reopen Christmas Island and ostensibly to accommodate the, um, the flow of uh, asylum seekers from Nauru and Manus, who, given the Medivac legislation that just passed, are supposed to be coming to the mainland to receive medical treatment, but um, it seems kind of cynical to, uh, it seems like a way to circumvent that legislation to reopen Christmas Island and have them ostensibly receive treatment there even though they don't have very good medical facilities there. Uh, so some of them no doubt will still need to come to the mainland, one presumes, um, but apparently they're advertising for psychologists and other medical staff to be available ASAP and one of the things in the job description apparently is the, um, the tropical location as, as kind of like a pool, um, which yeah, anyway is a little bizarre. Um, um, the film has been produced over a period of about four years and what I'm interested in given, um, given how much of polling is in the film is uh, the the lapsing time, if there was one, between um, Pauline and her adorable family leaving, I believe, the island in 2014 when she decided she was no longer going to um, participate in that regime, um, and whether she came back to the island to restage those scenes or whether you were able to do all the scenes with Pauline and her family then and there before she left, um, and has she been back or not? So how, how that kind of the production has been staggered over that. Yeah, how long do we have for the Q&A? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, just five years of, um, you know, five years, it's a five-year timeline, so I'd need a really long time to go into something like that. But I think, you know, we have uh, here with us tonight the Australian producer, Alex Kelly, um, and I just wanted to mention that as well, the cinematographer who shot the film is Michael Latham, who's also a Melbourne local, so there's a lot of Melbourne connections. Um, but those conversations that we were having was um, years ago. That was, you know, five years ago, and that's really when the research for the project began. Mm -hmm. um, and as the film started to develop, you know, conversations around how we would film it, of course, came up. Um, and I think, just to answer that, what you know, for example, with the therapy sessions, mm. uh, we were, you know, at the very beginning, going into the therapy um, 
space of Poland on the island and spending time with people, uh, seeing if they wanted to be filmed, and then we started filming there. But it became apparent really quickly that those uh, sessions we wouldn't really be able to use because people were going straight back into the detention centre. They were Their emails were being monitored. Um, so the sense of permission was very tenuous. And so we kind of had an idea and we started, you know, Poland and I starting ha having, having conversations about how we could move around that. And we kind of staged a bit of an experiment and we um, created a, a space on the mainland, actually here in Melbourne, to invite people that had just arrived from Christmas Island to the mainland of Australia, uh, who were clients of Polin, to take part in the therapy sessions. And it's interesting because people say, oh, so it was scripted. No, you know, these were real therapy sessions. Uh, Polin was very, um, you know, for her, for this to work in terms of her work ethics, it had to be therapy number one, filming number two. So we were invited guests into that space. Mm -hmm. I was not speaking to people beforehand or briefing them. Uh, and, and these were the stories that were surfacing. These were the, the types of stories that had really marked people. So every scene has a particular timeline and you know that would, that would take a time for us to go through it. But I think that's a good example of how filming in retrospect or using these hybrid elements helped us with the context of the film to actually maintain an ethics of, of care for the people we were working with. Exactly, that was going to be my next question around the casting doesn't seem the right word, but you know, uh, the people who were prepared to give their testimonials for the film. Um, but as you say, there were primarily therapy sessions that were being documented. Uh, but just to be clear, so all of those people had had their, um, uh, had been processed as it were, and were on the mainland and were not looking at having to go back like they had actually been hadn't been their status still hasn't really yeah, so most of those people are still on bridging visas uh -huh. um okay so not in a permanent visa situation sure. so we did things like we filmed with a lot of people so with those therapy sessions i think we filmed about um of the actual sessions around 20 sessions and we filmed with a lot of different people and that was really knowing that along the way you know, many of those people would not be able to participate, would not want to participate legally, it would be far too risky for them. Mm. So there were there were a lot of things we were kind of looking at as in how can we use this material by the very end, you know, of the process. Uh, and the version you actually saw is a version very specific to screening here in Australia where we don't see people's full faces in the therapy space. So the, the European and, and US version, or the version showing internationally, does show people. But um, even until now, uh, we found that, um, yeah, it's necessary to, to not be disclosing people's identities here in the current cl uh, political climate in Australia. And just before we do take questions from you, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, a short film that was produced in 2017 that's connected to this feature film, The Island? Also, if you can tell us, uh, apparently that's designed for people to view online. So. Yeah, there's a short film version, uh, it's actually for The Guardian in partnership mm -hmm. with The Bertha. Uh, so we were at a stage in the feature project where we were looking for funding to complete the project. Um, and this was a way that we uh, saw that we could kind of maintain the integrity of the feature by being able to finish it financially, but also to reach more of an audience. Mm -hmm. uh, having an online platform reaching you know, huge amounts of audience 
but also having a very different form. So the short is much more uh, informational based. It's, there's a lot more context. It, it really is kind of like a different beast, as you said, made in 2017. Uh, with another Melbourne uh, uh, person, we had Sally Blenheim, who was the editor for that, uh, and Alex Kelly was the producer. So um, yeah, it was interesting to work with the same story in two very different forms. Mm. So if you aren't completely overwhelmed with, with that film, perhaps at some point you might check out uh, the short film The Island. Did making the short film help to take on this purely observational kind of form for the feature film? Did you sort of feel like you had a lot of the context in the short film and you could just let go because you knew it had been captured in some form that people would be able to engage with? I really do, actually. I felt that this piece that uh, kind of gave us the information and you know helped us along a little bit more was there. It was kind of out there for the audience to see, and now we could go you know into something a lot deeper, kind of in an area that, that you know probably I'm more interested in, which was working in this kind of more ambiguous space mm. between you know documentary and fiction, although it is a documentary, uh, but using you know a lot more of these hybrid elements. So I think it did free us up to do that, but. I also think it's great that both forms exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of exciting to get to make two different films about the same topic. Hi, my name is Rolf de Heer. I don't live in Melbourne. I live across the water in Tasmania. But if I did live in Melbourne, my number one radio station would be 3CR because it's about community and community matters. And yes, you are. You're on 3CR with Annie on Showreel. And we're in the middle of listening to a Q&A with uh, Gabrielle Brady, who is the filmmaker behind Island of the Hungry Ghosts. I'm sorry about the uh, rattling uh, that you're hearing. It's because they were holding handheld mics and uh, every time they moved across to each other, they it makes this sort of rather vicious sound. I tried to reduce it, which I have actually, but I think the content is absolutely fascinating. So we'll continue with uh, Gabrielle Brady's answers to some audience questions about the making of Island of the Hungry Ghosts, which is about Christmas Island. I was just wondering, um, obviously it was a quite a hard time for Pauline and quite a sensitive subject. Um, I can imagine in that household, how did you go with making the decisions to shoot at um, to shoot at certain points and then stop at certain points, or was it more orchestrated than that? Um, no, it's a really good question. Um, I think you know the intimacy that we see in the film with Poland and her family is really an extension of our pre-existing relationship. So we know each other for ten years. You know, Poppy, her daughter that we see in the film is my goddaughter. So it's really they're an extension of my family. Um, but of course, bringing into a crew into that space and a new dynamic, particularly between me and Pauline, was, was a process. Uh, it really was a process that we had to undergo, that we became uh, you know, director and non-actor or participant, or uh, however you like to phrase that. Um, so for us, we actually went through a little bit of a rehearsal period. And this period was you know, not rehearsing scripted scenes, but introducing ideas around performance and some exercises uh, to help us to step into that role. I think on the very first day of the filming, uh, we were filming a scene down at the jetty, which is where, of course, the boats arrive. So it's a very loaded area, and it was meant to just be a walking scene. It's just Poland walking. Of course, it's documentary, and so things 
come up at times you can never expect. And so at that moment, something very unexpected came up for Pauline, very emotional. And my first reaction was to step in and give her a hug and tell the guys to go away and we need some time. And, and that's exactly what I did uh, because we had 10 years of friendship. So from that, we, we negotiated every day how it would look that, that for us as an audience to get inside of what the experience of what was happening for her, we need to see those vulnerable moments. I, I need to let those happen. So it was an everyday negotiation, but using the space of the rehearsals and having some performative elements helped us to step into the role beyond friendship, even though that's where the project you know, started and, and ended. Thank you, I think it was a beautiful film. Um, I'm just wondering about that space between documentary and fiction that you were talking about, and if you could tease that out a little more. Yeah, it's such a big topic, I think, especially at the moment. I, there's a word going around, hybrid. Uh, I guess that just conjures the idea of two forms coming together to merge into one. Um, I think for me, it's a way of describing something that moves away from a more traditional form of documentary, uh, of something that we're more used to. So that could be within style or approach. Uh, so for me, I come from a, a performance background, I studied acting. Um, I also studied at a school in Cuba where they didn't have departments. So when you studied film, direction, that was documentary, hybrid, fiction, everything in one. So I guess I had that interest in kind of blurring that line. Um, but also in this film, it was a huge response to context. And as I kind of mentioned before with, with the example of the therapy sessions, that we could use other tools and forms to get to what is an emotional truth. You know, sitting there and watching this film in Polen, for her, every moment is truthful because it came from a very truthful moment for her, uh, even if we were using some performative elements to arrive there. So I could go on and on and on about this question. Actually, I'm very passionate about it, but I'm aware of time, so I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. We have this gentleman. Yes. Yes, and her husband Arthur and the children, of course, too, are recruited in that process. So, um, yes, how, how good of him to be so supportive and generous. Absolutely, and also the kids, you know, because working with kids is a whole other uh, situation. And we actually had a bit of a rule going on with the kids that, um, you know, when, when the cinematographer Michael uh, and Leo, the, the sound person, had their gear on, they were invisible. They were invisible, they weren't being seen, they couldn't be talked to, but as soon as the gear off was off, it's all on. You can play with them, jump over them, they have to be your, your play friend. So <laughs> that seems we like a really good system. That, so that's the girls' work. Yes, I'm, I'm going to touch on the, the hybrid part as well. Um, and also, I thought it was a really, really beautiful film. Uh, you know, really quite a journey of observation. Um, my question is, is, how did you choose your moments with the direction? Like, for example, it reminded me of a Werner Herzog film, you know, where his documentaries, when you watch them, they you know, they really smack you in the face. But I also know that he's always telling them what to do, you know. He's always telling them what to say. So I just want to know, like, what was your process as the director? Did you choose the moments of when they have these conversations or did you maybe whisper to them or what to say or what to talk about or did you just go with the flow really and see how it panned out? 
I mean, I definitely wasn't whispering anything to anyone. I think um, it's kind of, you know, I like talking about the film when we have an extended amount of time because really each scene in this film had a totally different process. Um, in terms of working with the family, for example, that was really, really quite observational and untouched. Uh, so, to give an example of the scene where we see the family going to, uh, you know, they're looking around for a pumpkin and they come across them, some crabs. Where I intervene on that scene, for example, uh, would be, okay, so, you know, this afternoon, as part of our filming schedule or as part of this, you know, what we're all here to do, um, let's go out. I want you to find pumpkins because I want to film, uh, you know, art cooking pumpkin soup that night. So that gives an intention, for example, for them going out, which they do all the time to film pumpkins, but of course we did it that particular day. Um, and that way we could follow the family as they go out and explore the island, you know, because I think as a director to say to someone, just go out and look around the island is the same as saying, just walk naturally, you know, and it's kind of very awkward and no one knows what to do. So, yeah, there was some imposition in the... Um, the directive of, of, of action of what they were going out to do but then there we were as fly on the wall nothing was scripted or maneuvered or asked to do again we really uh, fell into the background on those scenes and that was really the the theme across all of the filming with the family um, we would film every morning with them waking up so there was no direction in those scenes there was no whispering to do this or you know we were just there privy to them waking up in the morning but of course, as a director, I'm looking for those little moments, like what we see, a little moment between a mum and, and her daughter, or a little moment of Albertine mentioning Poland's work, little threads that can help for the overall structure, um, but that are really happening and are really kind of enveloping scenes. So in that way, it's probably not as directed, a lot of the scenes that you see as, as it might kind of seem. But really, each scene in this film has, it has a very different uh, flavour of how it was created. This is Nicholas Verso, the writer-director of Boys in the Trees. You're listening to 3CR Showreel. On March 16, the Sintani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains, also poor waste management polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papua people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara, a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chaforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone.
And that's the end of Showreel this week. We've been listening to Gabrielle Brady talking to audience members after watching Island of the Hungry Ghosts. What a fantastic title. We're going to go out with Les Thomas, Song for Selva. If you've forgotten the refugees, you need to be reminded. Uh, coming up next is uh, Published or Not. <laughs> My name is Selva Coolidgelvin and I am fighting for my life Thirty-seven months I've been held, I miss my child, I miss my wife Escape the clutches of the men with guns, Sri Lanka was my home Australia put me in a prison camp, now it's three years gone Here they treat me like a worthless human being Do they see me as a worthless human being? They do not know Officials here, they question me They say they want me to return But how can I go back now When I've seen my people burn? It's hard to go on living when your future is denied. Yes, we'll wear you down, it's true. I could be one more suicide. So say I'm not a worthless human being. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.